Well, good morning. We, uh, we have the opportunity to gather and freely do that and study and reflect together. This is the part of the service where we, we do that each Sunday, and uh, we always ask God to be our teacher, so let's do that now. Father, we've uh, had the opportunity to sing your praises. We've just been singing and reflecting on the fact that even as we draw a breath, it's really a breath that you give us. It's your grace. And uh, we kind of live and move in the midst of your grace, whether we even know you or believe in you or not. And this is grace right now to us, God, that as we gather, you can speak to us. And that is what we ask. We ask that you'd help us to set aside distractions and set aside anything really that would keep us from hearing from you. And uh, we would ask that you, you speak to us now so that we could become more like your son Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen? So we're in a series that we've entitled The Power of a Word. And every week we're looking at just one word that if we were to actually practice it, put it into use, it would help us hear from God more clearly. It would help us follow Jesus more effectively. Um, in fact, we've been saying that if we would take this word that we are studying and, and talking about and put it into use, it would change our lives. Uh, we started with the word no. That was the first week in this series, talking about how that one little word can uh, be used by us to declutter our lives so that we can better hear from God, more effectively hear from Him. Uh, then we looked uh, last week at the word yes, and we talked about all of the promises of God are actually yes to us in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we can say yes to God or should say yes to God with our lives, how we do our lives with Him. And we do that, in fact, by saying yes to people, by being a blessing to other people around us. That was last week. I'm going to warn you, our word for this week is the hardest word of the whole series. And I'll just tell you up front, you're going to hate this message. I've hated it all week long as I've wrestled with it. The word for us this morning is the word sorry. And by that, I, of course, don't mean oops, my bad, you know. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, what we're really talking about is a personal examination with an unflinching honesty and confessing with humility and setting things right when they need to be set right. That's what we're talking about in this word sorry. It's like surgery, painful surgery for the soul. Uh, sorry is a simple word, but people find an amazing number of reasons not to use it. And I'm just guessing that some of you have not used it for quite a while and really don't want to use it. <laughs> Tell you a story. Uh, in the summers, our family has for many, many years gone up to Canada. Holly's folks have a cottage up there uh, or cottages up there. And uh, so we make our our annual trek for vacation up to Canada. And one of the first years that I went up there, uh, I discovered from canoeing around the lake and stuff, it's a large lake, that at the north end of the lake is a river, and a river comes into that lake. It's absolutely beautiful, just beautiful. Um, and it's not a deep river, anywhere from two feet to six feet deep. You know, there's probably some holes here and there. But uh, So I would get out of the canoe, or did get out of the canoe, and walk in the river, just gorgeous, cool, the water's flowing by and so got back into the canoe, canoed back to the cottages. And when I got out of the cottages, uh, or I got out of the canoe uh, at the cottages, 
Um, <laughs> Holly was standing not too far away, and she's like, whoa, wow, you've got leeches all over your legs, she said to me. And sure enough, I did. They were, you know, getting big and bloody and bulgy and all that kind of stuff. And so uh, we began the process of emergency measures to dig the leeches out of my leg. Fortunately, it saved my leg. And um, can you imagine with me if in that setting I would have said, you know, I don't want to be bothered with these leeches. They're no big deal. My life is still manageable. My leg is still working. So they'll probably just go away eventually. So, you know, stop shaming my body. Stop making me feel bad. Stop pointing out all the leeches. Would that kind of response have made any sense at all? No, it would not. Of course not. You know, we don't do that kind of thing with our bodies. If something's wrong with our body, we, if it gets serious enough, we go to a doctor, we get medication, we get advice about what to do and how to fix these kinds of things. We don't ignore problems with our bodies. We just do it with our souls. We, uh, we do it with our characters. We only do that with probably what matters the most to God, which is character development and becoming more like Jesus. So, you know, let's say I have a resentful temper. Let's say I have an undisciplined tongue. Let's say I have a habit of lust. Let's say I'm shackled by selfishness every day of my life. Let's say my real God is money because that's where I think my security rests. And people who know me well can see this as clearly as Holly could see the leeches on my leg. But I subtly, or maybe even not so subtly, let them know that they're telling me this would not be welcome by me. And so I kind of live a respectable double life. I go to church. I pray, you know, certainly whenever I need anything. I believe, although I doubt a lot too. And sorry is mostly a word I use to smooth over relational unpleasantness, try to control people, try to deliberately face, uh, 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 try to bring things out that will get uh, the objective I want in a relationship with a person. But, but I don't use the word sorry to deliberately face the ugly truth about the state of my soul, the ugly truth about me. I'm sorry for what's really going on in me. And so I keep my character defects kind of hovering vaguely, you know, in the background. I don't systematically examine myself for them. I mean, who would do that? I don't make a priority of seeking God's help to remove these kinds of things in my life, no matter the cost. I, I don't invite other people to look at these hidden areas. Most people don't. I tell myself that, you know, my stuff, my, my sins are not that bad. God is probably okay with most of this, right? Well, maybe not. I want to tell you kind of right at the beginning of this message, and it doesn't get any better. Uh, I want to tell you right at the beginning of this message, with as much love as I can, you have leeches on your legs. You have leeches. Interesting. It's so interesting that my pages are out of order. <laughs> you don't want me to preach the sermon out of order. It'll be very confusing. Here's the thing about leeches on our legs. God doesn't want us to ignore it or to ignore them. God wants us actually to remove the leeches that we have. He wants us to be a community 
that is always trying to be leech-free. So here's the question for you and me, and it's a loaded question. Will you make the great priority of your life asking God to deliver you from your sins at any cost? Or will you pretend like those sins are not there and just hope vaguely that they go away? Will you say, I don't want to look at them. It's too painful. I'll just pretend that these things are not there. There's a a very strange and a very scary story in the New Testament that tells us how high the stakes are when we're talking about hidden sins. In the earliest days of the church, just when the church was getting started in Jerusalem, we learn about one of the couples that were in that community. There's a husband and wife uh, named Ananias and Sapphira. Some of you know their story. Now, we don't know what first drew them to the community. We don't know what attracted them to Jesus Christ. Um, But there is something about the church that did draw them into that community. And one of the things we know was certainly true of the early church was the incredible generosity of the early church. Most people in the early church were were pretty poor, uh, not in positions of power, let alone wealth, but not all of them. Some did have resources, and they would share those resources with the church in order to meet needs that people in the community had. We read about one of these individuals in Acts chapter 4. His name was Joseph. Uh, He sold a field that he owned. He brought the money, and he gave it to the apostles, laid it at their feet, we're told. And uh, he was saying, use this money in service to the community. And people looked at what Joseph did and they thought, wow, that is pretty incredible. They thought very highly of Joseph. In fact, they thought so highly of him, they gave him a nickname. They called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. This guy's such an encourager to so many of us in the church, we're going to give him a new name, son of encouragement. Now, Ananias and Sapphira, like Joseph, have some means, some goods. They're, they are people of some possessions. And here's what happens. Here's what we read. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And the subtext here really is, as he was doing that, he must have been indicating that, hey, we, we sold a field and here's what we got for it. We're giving it to the church. And uh, so, you know, Ananias and Sapphira, they see how other people with resources are giving stuff away. Maybe they feel a little pressure to do something similar. Maybe they even resent it. We, we don't know. But they do see Joseph do this and they see that Joseph gets a, a new name, a nickname, Barnabas, you know, son of encouragement. And maybe they feel a little jealous about the attention that Joseph got. We don't know. Um, But they want to be generous. But they also want to be rich. They want to be loved. Uh, But they also want to indulge their jealousy a little bit, not come out in the open with it. They want to be celebrated, but not at uh, any great personal sacrifice. And so they decide to deceive is what they do. Um, Truth be told, they have divided hearts. I have a divided heart. I mean, I want God. I do. I absolutely want more of God, more of Jesus uh, in my life. But I also want stuff, stuff that I know God doesn't want me to have, things that he knows better than I will be destructive in my life. I, too, have a divided heart. 
Now, Ananias gets an idea around this, and he thinks, you know what? We could sell a field, one of the maybe many fields that they own. We could take the money from selling it. We could give it to the church, but we could keep some of that money for ourselves, and people will just think we're giving it all. And we'll have the the false reputation for being greatly, uh, sacrificially generous to the church. And we'll be able still to take some of that money and indulge our greed, get what we want, do what we want with it, avoid the pain of having to come right out in the open and admitting that we're kind of jealous of Joseph, maybe even resentful. And so we can have the admiration of others while we secretly betray the values we pretend to uphold. That'd be great, right? Kind of what they do. And so he tells his wife, Sapphira. And that is a key moment, friends, when Ananias talks to Sapphira. Because Sapphira could have said, hmm, Ananias, you have a leech on your leg. You have something going on in your character that we had better address. We need to take emergency measures here. But instead, she says, okay, sounds good to me. Neil Planting uh, uh, writes about this text, and he says this is actually the sin of conniving is what's going on. It's the sin of conniving, and that's a really important kind of sin. It's a very destructive sin. We pretend not to notice our character defects and connive and work around them. Good connivers don't even acknowledge that they're conniving when they are conniving. Really good connivers just connive. Uh, The apostle Peter finds out about this. We don't know how. Um, the Holy Spirit perhaps tells him, or maybe he's just led by the Spirit to ask questions, more questions that were even mentioned in the text. We don't know. But uh, Peter doesn't connive. Peter comes right out and just, boom, just addresses this with Ananias. Makes it very clear that the deepest sin here isn't, it's not jealousy, it's not resentment, it's not even greed. That's not the deepest sin. Look at what it says. He says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? In other words, you can do with it what you want. And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. You see, the real sin here of Ananias and Sapphira was the sin of deceit. It was the decision that they were going to connive. They were going to live a double life. Uh, There is something about spiritual hiddenness and duplicity and double lives that's really toxic to the community that God's created, this thing called the church. And that makes it a sin not just against other people, but it actually makes it a sin against God. Here's what happens next. We read that when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And then the young men came forward and wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. Just a little aside here, I'm thinking of starting a death ministry. Uh, I'll have to get people to sign up to carry out the dead body. Some of you look dead sometimes when I'm standing up here. We could mistakenly have you carried out and buried, but we wouldn't. Anyway, I digress. That's not really what the text is about. Anyway, it says there, about three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Ooh, this is a huge moment. 
This is a loaded question. This is time for the truth. But she says, yes, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. You think? (laughs) Wow. Now we know that Ananias and Sapphira were very flawed members of this new community, right? The text doesn't say they died and went to hell. Doesn't tell us that. Uh, We know that God is the kind of God that he's always at work in our lives to affect good things, uh, things that should happen, that need to happen in our lives. And in this particular moment in the life of Ananias and Sapphira, it was better for them, I think, to go to heaven than it was to remain in the community at the risk of damaging the community. That's my best guess. Now, question. Why in the world is this story in the Bible? I mean, whose idea was it to put this story in the Bible? Uh, I mean, remember, when the New Testament is written, uh, it's in the very early years of the church. They're trying to grow the church, right? Uh, They're trying to attract people into this community. Having stories about people keeling over dead in the church services does not seem like a a great recruiting strategy. Hey, why don't you come to my church? You might die, or you might get to see somebody die. I mean, wow. (laughs) But, you know, reflecting on this and thinking about it, here's what I think is going on. You know, the early church was a community of unprecedented spiritual power. Power to heal on command. People had the gift of healing. And Dad Gummit, when they said, be healed in the name of Jesus Christ, people were healed. That's how it happened. Power to raise the dead. It happened several times in the ministry of the early church. Power to forgive sin. Power to escape from jail several times uh, through the working of the Holy Spirit or angelic interference. People are, you know, freed. They're sprung from jail. Power to break down ethnic barriers between groups of people that have always hated each other's guts. But not in the church. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Power to love the unlovely. But power, of course, as great as it can be, can also be very dangerous when put into the hands of the wrong people. It's always important to know how power operates. And in the early church, the human race got plugged into, you could say, the power of God because the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. That's the language of the New Testament. And this greater presence of God manifested itself in a greater power of God being visible. Now, the question, of course, is how does this, how does this spiritual power work in the church? What triggers it? What invites it? What allows it? And the simple answer is this. Spiritual power flows when people get honest, really honest about their flaws and their sin and their deep, deep need of God. None of us fully understand this. None of us certainly control this, not in any way, shape, or form. It's kind of counterintuitive, actually, because we think uh, power is all about being great 
and being clever and being wise and being strong and being in control. But actually, the power of God really flows through people when they get serious about acknowledging their weakness and their confusion and their guilt and their sin and above all, their need for God. You see, God is actually very clear about this. Uh, He says to the Apostle Paul at a time when the Apostle Paul was really struggling, apparently he had something physically wrong with him that, as far as he could understand, was impeding his ability to plant churches and grow churches and instill health and power and, and truth and so on in the lives of churches. And so he's been pleading to God over and over and over, God, deliver me from this. He could heal other people. Apparently he wasn't able to heal himself here. And this is what... God says to Paul, God says, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Whoa. It's like God says to Paul, you know, Paul, it would be better for you just to have to trust me in this. Just to hold on for dear life. Again, we get confused about this. We think that we have to show people how strong we are, how smart we are as a church or as a Christian, how good we are, how victoriously we can live. And often, with that kind of thinking, churches start trying to look better than they really are. But that's not really how God wants us to live. He doesn't want us living pretentiously. That kind of behavior, in fact, thwarts the power of God being present and being displayed and being active. In contrast, when we get honest and when we share our real struggles, our real stories, our character defects, our real-time problems, when those problems are happening, not, hey, once upon a time in my life I committed that sin, you know, now I'm struggling committing that sin. Hey, I really messed up. Hey, I'm really tempted. I need your prayers. You know, that kind of honesty, that actually increases the flow of spiritual power. It encourages honesty among the people of God. Sins get named and people get known and they wind up being forgiven and they wind up being loved and they wind up getting healed and it's fascinating. You know, Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit flowing in and through human beings. He talks about this in the Gospel of John, John chapter 7, and he uses this metaphor. He says it's like streams of living water that will bubble up and and effervesce out of you when you have the Holy Spirit living in you. And Jesus says that will happen for anyone who believes in me. That's what he says. And um, later on, the Apostle Paul, who's experiencing that very thing happening in his life, but not getting healed because God wants him to work in his weakness. The Apostle Paul tells us that it's It's possible for us to actually grieve the Holy Spirit. That's the language he uses in Ephesians chapter 4, I think verse 30, that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. And we do that when we hide in sin. Read the context. When we hide in sin, it decreases spiritual power. It diminishes, it grieves the Spirit's work among us. It blocks and it impedes honesty and change and grace. We need honesty and change and grace. You see, when, when we live a, a double life, when we're connivers, so to speak, um, 
that doesn't just damage the hider. It actually damages the whole community. When that happens, we all sense kind of pretense. One time, some years ago, in this service, uh, or in this church, we gave you all masks. Were any of you here for that? Do you remember that? We were talking about this subject. We had you using masks. The freakiest looking thing you ever saw. Everybody in the church with a mask on. But it's like wearing masks. You sense it. You feel it. It's freaky. When everybody's wearing a mask, you feel isolated. You can't talk about the real you because you don't want to look any different than anybody else who's got a mask on. When we all wear a mask, we actually all live in despair, too, because there's no hope of real change. I can't be honest about the real me. But you see, when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, God started a new community where spiritual power flowed with unprecedented force. And the story of Ananias and Sapphira is the first story of hiding and deception and duplicity in that early church. And it is very much a repeat of the story of hiding and deception that happened going way back to the Garden of Eden. It's the same thing going on. And Pentecost, you see, is God's reboot. He's pouring out His Spirit. He's creating a new community, if you will. A new humanity is being formed. And and then come Ananias and Sapphira into that community. And it's the story of the fall all over again. Duplicity. And, And when they sin that way, what does it lead to? Well, sin always leads to death. Really. It always leads to death. And uh, this is why I think this story makes it into the Bible. It's a huge warning to us. It's telling us, do not make your ultimate fear the fear of dying. That would be misguided. Your ultimate fear should be the fear of living the wrong life. Your ultimate fear should be the fear of becoming the wrong person. Your ultimate fear should be the fear of living a life in hiding which is the same as living a life where you lose your soul. And when the text says not once but twice, in verse 5 and in verse 11, it says, great fear sees them all. We look at that and we think, well, yeah, that had to be a really unpleasant church service. You know, people were dropping dead. But what in fact was really going on, it was the removal of insanity, the insanity of choosing to live a duplicit life and replacing that with sanity. Better than Ananias and Sapphira come home, be taken out of the church, and we make the point that this is desperately serious, this thing of living the double life. Um, You know, here's the thing, too. Um, People who know grace know that what we're talking about right now is really true. There's a line in the, the old hymn, Amazing Grace, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Fear what? Fear God. Just like what happened with Ananias and Sapphira in the church when they observed what was going on. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. When you experience grace, what is grace? Grace is I bring my sin out into the open. I experience forgiveness. I experience grace. What does that do? That produces healthy fear of God in my life. I, uh, I have known folks, do know folks that I really uh, love and appreciate who are part of AA. Some of you probably do too, probably have family members, 
participating in um, that organization. And they live in the knowledge and the healthy fear that apart from the everyday, moment-by-moment grace of God operative in their lives, they are one choice, one drink, one puff, one move from hell and death itself. And so they live with the very fresh, very healthy awareness that today, new day, I need God's help. Tomorrow, new day, I need God's help. God help me, God help me, God help me, God help me. And such people understand that they need a community of intense spiritual power that comes from intense spiritual honesty. Comes from intense spiritual deep confession. Comes from a place of being thoroughly cleansed of sin because we bring it out into the open. And you know what? That is the church that Jesus actually came to start. A church like that. And I have to tell you, um, <laughs> I grow weary sometimes from the fact that I, I do see that power in places like 12-step programs where people are being entirely and totally open and honest with each other when they do that. And I get weary sometimes of not always seeing it present in the church like it should be. I'm a part of that problem, too, by the way. Um, Now, here's the deal. You and I, we either help the church become that kind of community, an open and an honest, a non-pretentious kind of community, or we thwart it. We get in the way of it. We hide. It's just that simple. Now, I told you. Did I lie to you? Do you like in this message? No, this, this is not a good message. I know it. This is one you'll want to forget. Um, but in the time that remains in this message, here's what I want to do. I want to walk us through how to become people who aren't perfect and really actually do not pretend to be. It's that really actually part that's so tricky. In other words, what does it mean to live in the word sorry? I mean, to really be repentant and and open and honest about the stuff in us and to be in that place, that healthy place. God, I need your help. God, I need your help. God, I need your help. I'm sorry. It's not rocket science. (laughs) But it's harder than rocket science. It's way hard. I'm going to give you three simple steps. Again, simple but hard. Three simple steps, things you can do to make this practical. Number one, between now and Easter, I would recommend you do this. Do a thorough, searching, personal, moral inventory, period. Told you. Told you you weren't going to like it. The psalmist, David, says this in Psalm 139. says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Point is, you can't do this alone. It won't work if you try and do it alone. You have to do this with God. You have to ask God's help. You have to ask him to remove the blinders because the blinders are there. You have to set aside time for this as well. You won't be able to do this on the go. You just won't. And I would even recommend a framework to you, one that the church has used for centuries. Um, You've heard of the seven deadly sins. How many? Have you all heard of seven deadly sins? How many have committed all of them? Uh Uh-huh. Just me. The seven deadly sins. Pride. Okay. Anger. 
lust, envy, gluttony. Some of you are going to do that right after this service. Greed, laziness. Just use those as a filter. Use those as a guide. And do a thorough, searching, personal, moral inventory. Uh, Go down the list. Ask God to help you see where these sins are present in your thoughts and in your behavior. Write down your observations in a journal. I highly recommend it. It'll bring clarity. And then hide the journal really well. Is this painful? Oh, yeah. You bet it's painful. Like hell, it's painful. It's intensely painful. And here's why you should do this. What does our world need more than anything else? What does it need most? I'll tell you what it doesn't need. It doesn't need better housing. It doesn't need better laws or better medicine or better governments or better schools. What it needs more than anything else are better people. Better people. And that's something that you can actually produce. You can. You can make a great contribution to that need. Now, you know, as soon as I say that, our mind turns towards who we might improve. I mean, I look at Ed, and I'm thinking, Ed, you need a lot of improvement. And I think I could improve Ed. Or I look at my spouse, or I look at my kids, or I look at the staff, or I look at you, and I think, whoa, you people need help. And I think about improving you. How well does that work? Not well is right. Not well. The best shot you have at changing someone or improving someone is with you. You need to improve yourself. You need to remove the leech on your leg. After all, that leg is yours. You need to deal with the sin in your soul. After all, that sin is your sin. Nobody else's. So do a thorough, this is step number one, do a thorough searching personal moral inventory. Get to know your own leeches, identify them, and then it's time for step number two. And here's step number two. Gets worse. Confess your defects to God, to yourself, and when necessary, to another person. Now, again, this comes right from Jesus' own life. It comes right out of his practice in the community that he created. James, the brother of Jesus, is one who writes about this in the New Testament. James says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. You'll notice that there's actually a connection between this practice of confession and and uh, being open and honest about who you are and prayer and this thing of healing. There's a connection between these. Something happens when people get real. Spiritual power, God's power does flow. When I confess to God, when I own it for, to myself, and yes, that's, that's me, that's who I really am, and then when necessary, I share it with another person. You know when it's necessary to share it with another person? When a sin has you in its grip. When a sin has become a pattern in your life, then it becomes absolutely necessary to share it with another person. So you see, you have a well-worn path to porn, but only you know it. Yeah, good luck with that struggle. You live greedily, 
not generously. You don't give, you don't tithe, you don't practice anything. Nobody knows it. Well, good luck with that. You hide an addiction, alcohol, gambling, drugs, sex, whatever it is, but nobody knows it. Good luck with changing that. You flare up in anger constantly. I mean, vicious anger. Yeah, truth be told, you've put a fist in the wall a time or two, but nobody knows it. Good luck changing that. You gossip. You accuse others of sin. But you don't even go talk to them. That's a pattern in your life. Good luck with changing that. You tell lies constantly, making yourself look better than you you really are. But nobody knows that. And good luck with changing that. See, sins that are patterns in your life, sins like that, you need to confess to God. You, You need to confess to yourself, and you need to confess to another person. And I know you don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. So I'm going to give you two reasons why you must do this, okay? You don't really want to hear this either, though, do you? Two reasons why you must. Number one, getting this kind of stuff out in the open is the beginning of real freedom. Admitting your sin to yourself and to God is a must. It's absolutely um, necessary for you to do it. David says in Psalm 32, he says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, God, and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then he says this with such joy, And you forgave the guilt of my sin. There's a solution to the problem of guilt and the problem of shame. But as long as you hide your sin, you will feel guilt and shame. And it will result in putting distance between you and God and even other people. Somebody said one time, and it's totally true, you are as sick as your secrets. Think about that. You are as sick as your secrets. So that's one reason to confess your sins to another person. You want some healing, won't start. Not in areas where you have patterns of sin. It won't start until you bring it out in the open with someone. Here's the second reason you need to do this. When you confess your sin to another person, you experience forgiveness, you experience love, and you experience accountability. And the fact of the matter is, you and I, we all need all three. You need to look into the eyes of someone that you trust, somebody that you probably love or highly esteem, and expose your worst sins and have them forgive you and love you. It's incredibly powerful. I've done it a number of times. And the forgiveness and the love that comes in that moment is really almost unlike anything else I've ever experienced. You mean even after I admit that this is a problem, In my life, you can forgive me. You still love me. Yes, I do. See, here's the thing, too. When I don't do this, when I keep a secret from you, even if you tell me that you love me, my first thought is, yeah, of course, you you don't really know me. (laughs) That's easy to say. You see, you can only be loved to the extent to which you're known. Otherwise, you'll always say, yeah, of course, you love me, but you don't really know me. You can only be fully loved to the extent that you're fully known. And you know, God made the church to be a place where people can be, they're supposed to be able to be known fully. 
people who aren't perfect and don't pretend to be, you know. The church should be the place where people can be fully known and therefore can be fully loved and can be in process towards being fully healed. It's what the church is supposed to be about. So confessing our sins one to another is very powerful, very freeing, and very transformative, almost like nothing else. The accountability piece is important. It's critical. When I know I have to face the pain and the humiliation of sitting down with a friend and saying, here's my lust, here are my lies, here's my self-pity, here's my self-indulgence. Oddly enough, when I put into place the process of having to do that, that serves as a huge deterrent to having to keep doing it. I mean, you know, maybe I should just stop this. It would be less painful. It helps break the power of that sin in my life. Now, who do you share this with? Not a stranger. You don't go out today and say, hey, you know, my pastor said I should share my sins with somebody. Mind if I choose you? Bad idea. It may be that you want to find a really good counselor and that that becomes the person with whom you share openly and honestly. I mean, one good thing about that is you can sue them if they tell anybody. If not a counselor, somebody you really trust. Here's the thing, friends. (laughs) I know you hate what I'm saying because I hate what I'm saying. But here's the reality, whether you're a Christ follower or not. You know, the Bible says that we live in a spiritual ecosystem. We're made in the image of God. Uh, We're made for relationship. And the reality is we can... uh, (laughs) We can try to do life differently. We can try to do end runs around the things that the Bible teach in this respect, uh, but it will get us nowhere. So because we live in a spiritual ecosystem, here is a fact. When people hide, that part of them that they're hiding will die. It leads to death every time. When people get real and open up about who they are, they can get healed. That's part of the spiritual ecosystem in which we live. So, I confess my stuff to God. I confess my stuff to myself. And where I have patterns of sin, I must confess my stuff to another person. Now, there's a third step in this process of trying to live with this word, sorry, live in repentance, and it's this. Once you've done the first two steps, then you do whatever you have to do to make right what you made wrong. Now, let's just admit right out of the end, you, you can't always do this. Sometimes what you made wrong is just something you can't even go back and fix. But when and where you can, you're supposed to. Um, this is just what the Bible teaches. You can read uh, this afternoon if you want Leviticus chapter 5 and Leviticus chapter 6. It happens to list a whole bunch of sins that the people of Israel were likely to commit, and they did. Deception, stealing, carelessness, anger, and a whole bunch of other things are listed there. But the principle in those two chapters of 5 and 6 is simply this, that when you realize your sin, when you own it, when you acknowledge, yeah, I did that, that's me, then you must go back and make right what you made wrong make restitution is the point so you don't do that to get God to forgive you that's not the point you do it because of justice sake God loves justice God loves when 
when broken things are fixed, when wrong things are made right. You do it because it's the right thing to pursue reconciliation. It's the right thing to pursue healing. It's the right thing to pursue forgiveness. It's the right thing to make restitution, to pay back. I told this story in the first service. Um, When I was in high school, before I became a Christian, I had a great job. I worked at a sort of like a place like Walgreens. I think it was called Hague Drug, actually, is what it was called. And this is in Carmel, Indiana. And I worked there for, uh, I don't know, a year or so. I think I probably said in the first service a year and a half. It might have been a little less than that. And I was a stock boy. Best job ever. You know, stuff comes in. I open it up. Put it out on the shelves, mark the price, and so on. Get paid for this. I would go in every day after after uh, school, and uh, it was just a great job to have while I was in school. Um, I figured out pretty early on that you know this stuff comes in the back room back there, what they call the stock room, and sometimes cool things, electronic things would come in. I liked electronic things. Uh, what if I just took this and sat it outside, out back, you know, and then pick it up later on, you know, outside the building? I, you know, who's going to catch me? Nobody's watching me. Nobody's. I started doing that, and I did that for a while. I don't know how long, but, you know, the better part of that year, I was taking stuff that wasn't mine, stealing things. Owner of that business, or the manager of that business, he didn't own it, but the manager was a Christian. I always thought that was a little weird, some of the stuff he did and said. But uh, at one point in time, partially because of him, I became a Christ follower. And so... I knew right away I should stop it, so I stopped stealing. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a genius, but I'm not dumb. I mean, uh, Jesus doesn't want me to steal, so I stopped stealing. But I didn't want to go back and rethink what I'd been doing for a while, you know, because I'm thinking, ooh, I, yeah, that could, I could get fired, all kinds of stuff. Bad things could happen. And uh, the Holy Spirit began to bother the heck out of me. Because I'd been taking stuff that didn't belong to me. Who knows how many hundreds and hundreds of dollars I'd racked up, you know, through stealing. Um, And man, it began to bother me. I couldn't get it out of my mind. Uh, It started to put distance between me and the manager, distance between me and God. Nobody knew this. I think my mom probably wondered where I was getting all this stuff, but she never had the sense to say, where are you getting all this stuff? Anyway, but anyway, she probably trusted me. But anyhow, so eventually, you know, long story short, it's already too long. I, I, I went to the manager, and I told him what I had done. And uh, to his credit, he, uh, he said, well, you need to make restitution. Let's figure out what the number is that you need to pay back. And we did, and that was very painful. And so I continued to work there through the rest of my years in, in high school, and I paid back that, that money. And boy, I drew closer to him, and that was important. Uh, but more importantly, I drew closer to God. And man, did I feel free. My conscience was clean. My conscience was clear. And my relationship with him, with the Father, the Heavenly Father, took steps forward. You see, trying to make something right that you made wrong is the, one of the very keys to personal transformation. It's how we grow, literally. It's how you and I receive grace uh, to become a different person. Is it painful? Oh, Woo! 
Yes. Does it suck? Yes. Does anybody want to do it? No. Wow. But painful as it was, you know, I'm told that childbirth is painful. I wouldn't know, but I'm told that it's pretty painful, but good stuff comes from it. It's intensely worth it. That's the point. Now, here's the thing. In the time that we've got left, I want you to completely shift gears. This is a whole different message from this point on. Let me tell you why most of you, almost all of you, are not going to do anything that I'm talking about this morning. Okay? I'm going to tell you why you're not going to do anything that we've talked about this morning. This thought will come to you. I don't really need to do this. I mean, yeah, people who are moral train wrecks, murderers, thieves like the pastor, jailbirds, <laughs> adulterers, kidnappers, addicts. Yeah, they need this. But my life is pretty manageable. And so you put yourself into the category of a conventionally decent person. Not perfect but not a train wreck, a conventionally decent person. And here's the problem. The sins of conventionally decent people are particularly odious to God. Are you aware of that? They are the hardest sins for anyone, for any people to even acknowledge and notice. Pride, resentment, judgmentalism, lovelessness, they are actually the sins that we most need help to see in our lives. And by the way, it was conventionally decent people who were Jesus' biggest enemies. It was conventionally decent people who put Jesus on the cross. It was conventionally decent people who tried to stamp out the church in its earliest days. And speaking as a recovering, conventionally decent person, I don't need less help from other people with my sins. I need more help, if the truth be told. I am more likely to be blind to my sins because I am a conventionally decent person. Would you agree? You know, another reason why most of you are going to completely ignore this message, 100%. You'd be so glad when this is over and get out and just go gluttony. Um, <laughs> here's why. The evil one's going to put this thought into your head. I know I should do this. I know God wants me to do this. I know I need to do this. But I don't want to do this. And I would just say, of course you don't want to do this. Nobody wants to do this. But what in the world does want have to do with this? Where in the Bible does it ever say, thou shalt do what thou wantest to do? You see, if you're serious about following Jesus, then I don't want to do it should have died a long time ago as the ultimate criteria for your decisions. Well, I don't want to apologize. <laughs> Who does? I don't want to tithe. Neither do I. I don't want to be gracious to people who don't deserve my being gracious to them. Wow, what a revelation. If you are still allowing, I don't want to, to trump Jesus' call on you to do something, then you might want to think about whether or not you're really following him 
or not. Now, everything I've said so far sucks. I know that. Now it's going to suck worse. Is there an easier way for you or me to grow? Is there a, a softer way to become more like Jesus? None that I know of. The Apostle Paul said this when he was writing to the church at Galatia. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20. And I think part of the point that he's making is that following Jesus is all about dying. And I don't mean at all to be flippant, but being crucified hurts like hell. The hell of my sin and my betrayal and my ugliness and my deception and my apathy and my selfishness and my greediness being seen and known for what it is and where necessary acknowledged to another person. Oh, that is hell. Dying to self hurts like hell. It does. But the thing about resurrection you want to experience it, you have to die. Now, to help us put a stake in the ground on this, Jesus gave his church two great practices so we could over and over and over be rehearsing this thing that if I die, I'll be resurrected. One was the sacrament of baptism. This is an expression of being washed and cleansed, you know, dying to self, coming alive to God. And I just want to let you know, kind of, this is just a heads up. On April 22nd, that's three weeks after Easter, on April 22nd, we're going to have a baptism service here. And if you have never made that decision to be crucified to your old self and to come alive to Jesus, to make Jesus your forgiver and your friend and your, your savior and your guide and your teacher, uh, you can make that public declaration here in that baptism service on April the 22nd. God loves that. <laughs> in fact, we're told that all of heaven celebrates when somebody makes the discovery of who Jesus is and they, they decide to follow him. Now, to kind of gear people up for that, the two Sundays after Easter, on April the 8th and April the 15th, we're going to have a, a class. I'll be teaching a class around this. It's the same class both times, just doing it twice for people or their scheduling. It'll be after the second service. We're going to have lunch together, and we're going to talk about baptism, what it means to die to self and to live to Jesus, what it means to get up in front of people and make the public declaration to the world, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, I promise you, if you do that, this church is going to come alive. It's going to just be applauding what you're doing and celebrating with you the new life that you're proclaiming you want to live in Jesus. That'll be awesome. And maybe you know somebody that they don't yet know who Jesus is. My first question to you would be, are you praying for them? Do you want them to come to know Jesus? Then pray for them. Invite them to join us at Easter. They're going to hear the gospel if they do. Who knows what Jesus will do. Maybe they'll want to go to a class. Maybe they'll want to get baptized. I don't know. But, but you know, maybe God wants to use you in the life of someone to have them discover just who Jesus is. Be praying about that. The other practice that Jesus gave the church is this thing of communion. Now think about this. 
Communion, we do regularly, over and over. You get baptized once in your life, hopefully. Uh, Communion, you do over and over and over. Why do we do it? Because every time we come to the communion table, we we remember the words of Jesus. This bread is my body broken for you. This, This cup is... My blood shed for many for the remission of sins. And we we do it over and over and over to remind ourselves of the crucifixion, this thing, and also of the resurrection. We got to be reminded all the time of the crucifixion, die to self, the resurrection. Jesus is coming again. I'm going to be resurrected. We do that as long as we live because we need to keep dying and keep being reminded. And by God's grace, we need to keep being transformed. That's something the Bible calls sanctification. It's becoming more like Jesus. Friends, here's the deal. This would be my challenge to you. Don't take communion as a conventionally decent person. Take it as a person with a leech on your leg. Sorry for your sin. Repented of your sin celebrating the forgiveness of Jesus. Now, we're going to take communion together on Good Friday. You know, we're in this period of Lent. We're kind of gearing ourselves up for Easter. And I hope you'll join us Good Friday because we're going to have a special service here that evening. It's all about preparing ourselves for the celebration of Easter. But to get there, we need to get to the cross. We need to remember the crucifixion. And remember that resurrection's coming. That's March 30th. I hope you'll join us. Now, so here here you go. Take a thorough, searching, personal, moral inventory. Use the seven deadly sins. If you need help, if you're stuck on point number one and you're married, just ask your spouse for a list. Number two, confess to God, confess to yourself, and where necessary, patterns of sin in your life. Confess to another person. Number three, make right what you made wrong to the best of your ability. Pray with me. Father God, this is uh, tough stuff. I do believe that this word sorry is by far the hardest word to actually put into practice. It is in my life, Lord. And I pray for myself and I pray for this church, this congregation, that you would work in us, God, to make us tenacious about being knowing that we are people who aren't perfect and uh, help us, God, not to pretend that we are. Help us to be a community that welcomes people who are broken and wants to work with them towards healing. Help us to be a community that lives in and bathes in and walks in the grace and the goodness and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus. May we show his light, his light to the people around us. In all of this, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our King.